0: Five seconds to submergence, submergence deep into the absurd. Okay, it is a uh, pot o'clock, it's pot o'clock, we're, uh, we're doing chapter two, the absurd man section three, Conquest. Uh, This chapter is interesting because Camus basically embodies the voice of the Conqueror. So it's basically uh, like the whole thing is written in a quote, basically, uh, except for the last little bit. And he's basically pretending to be a Conqueror. And he's describing uh, the absurdity or why the, I guess, the attributes of this Conqueror. In such a way that we're supposed to know that, uh, well, in the context of this essay and the context of the chapter, The Absurd Man, he's describing the way The Conqueror should be in such a way that we, the audience, the readers, would know, okay, this is why The Conqueror is The Absurd Man, right? So... It's a little weird and definitely differentiates itself from everything else in the book. Now, we've gone through two other examples of the absurd man, right? First, we had the seducer, then the actor, and now the conqueror. So, for the seducer, he seduces because the feeling of love is the goal. So, Don Juan goes after these women right and he's going after them because he wants to feel true love he wants to feel that passion of love not just uh he he doesn't want to you know just he, he's not just having sex with them and then throwing them away right he he's going after these girls and putting his full self into them and he's falling in love with each one of them fully and well like I said he he doesn't Collect women or tell people stories about them as if they're trophies, right? But instead, he, he exhausts them just as one would exhaust an experience. He, he keeps going through them, right? Likewise, since the nature of being a seducer implies that each relationship will end, he is fully aware that he will simply move on to the next relationship. However, he nonetheless lives out his passion with each woman to its fullest. I I just want to say I I definitely don't condone being a Don Juan character or being a seducer. Uh, Don Juan is used as an example of an absurd character, an absurd man, right? And that's kind of what Don Juan represents in this context, right? So, right, he's living in the moment, and he's with each woman to its fullest, right? And he's not trying to live. He's not with them for the eternal ideal of love. Love is a concept. He's with these women for the feeling of love. So the the actor is the next up, right? That, that was section two. They have to live out all these different lives, right? And with living out these different lives, um, they they exhaust those different lives, right? They exhaust those different experiences and they have to live they have to live in these characters to their fullest and it's just uh it's just fleeting kind of fame right it's that Camus describes the actor having the most ephemeral kind of fame because they're on stage the fame lasts basically just while they're alive right a- a- at least for plays because no one's ever going to go care about that actor in the future because they're never going to see that play again, right? I have no idea who did the like original um, Shakespeare plays in Shakespeare's auditorium or whatever, right? Basically, most people have no idea who they are. And I'm not sure if anyone does. I'd have to fact check that. Okay, so they, they're putting their full self into each and every role, right? even though they know that they're just going to play another role tomorrow, right? Or, or the next day. So, and they know that they're, that no one's ever going to watch these plays again. Right. I, I just said that. And since they know that no one's ever going to watch these plays again, they kind of just, they, they do it anyways. Right. But, uh Camus does this good contrast between the actor and the writer where he explains how the writer It's different because their fame isn't ephemeral at all. Uh, Actually, most writers don't experience their fame while they're alive. A lot of them die, and then it becomes famous later, right? Or maybe it's never famous at all. Okay, so the Conqueror, that's next up. That's section three. This section, we have someone who is fully aware that what they conquer will eventually be conquered by someone else then another and then another moreover they will die one day and will have never been it it will be as if it had never mattered in the first place right also what is even the point of conquering if one can be just as happy not conquering right but for the most part the conqueror conquers for the sake of conquering at least camus conqueror, Camus' example of the absurd conqueror, right? Playing to win, even when the odds are against you, is worthwhile for the sake of the game, because the conqueror knows that the thrill of the game ends when it ends, regardless of whether they won or they lost. And so, again, since the conqueror cannot eternalize the feeling of winning, they must multiply it through an endless pursuit of it. With that said, let's dive right into it, guys. Share my screen for you YouTubers out there. Throw this in here. Okay. All right. Quote No, says the conqueror. Don't assume that because I love action, I have had to forget how to think. On the contrary, I can thoroughly define what I believe, for I believe it firmly and see it surely and clearly. Beware of those who say, I know this too well to be able to express it, for if they cannot do so, this is because they don't know it, or because out of laziness they stopped at the outer crust. End quote. So Camus is trying to formulate to us that action is the physical expression of thought when such action is done on a purpose. I mean, he doesn't exactly say that, but you know, we don't want to say like if you're thoughtlessly making decisions and acting without thought, then, you know, obviously that would be, that, that would go against what he said, right? Don't assume that I don't think just because I act, right? The conqueror thinks and then acts on their thoughts, right? The The conqueror loves action because they're able to see and experience what they think. A fantasy is only a fantasy unless it is carried out into the real world, right? The, the conqueror can express their thoughts through their deeds. Additionally, if the conqueror does not know something, he does not speak about it. Now, I will say that people in my life who I know are doers and not thinkers are generally significantly smarter than those who consider themselves to be thinkers. They set plans. They get things done right. They, they know how to connect their thoughts to reality, connect their thoughts to reality in such a way that they can actually affect the reality that exists within. Likewise, they don't waste their breath on things they know nothing about. Why? Because they can thoroughly define what they believe. A doer thoroughly defines what they believe. And they they do. They act. They don't just think of stuff and fantasize and daydream. They think of what they know. And they execute what they know. So in the next paragraph, we have, quote, at the end of a life, man notices that he has spent years becoming sure of a single truth. But a single truth, if it is obvious, is enough to guide an existence. A man is more a man through the things he keeps to himself than through those he says, there are many but I shall keep to myself, end quote. Now, how many times have you met someone that is so sure of their beliefs and ideals that they continuously talk about them, right? This continuous looking is the, quote, becoming sure that Camus mentions. And, I mean, obviously, I have a podcast, so. (laughs) So, I mean, I do this all the time, all right, guys? You caught me red-handed, all right? Well, one becomes sure of their truths by constantly thinking about how true they think they are, right? Along with picking up as much confirmation bias as they possibly can. So, you know, you're, uh, for for instance, I'll be, you know, I'll do these podcasts and, you know, I'll post some online and then I I look at my YouTube algorithm and I get stuff that just confirms the things that I put on my podcast, right? (laughs) Okay. So there's a lot of confirmation bias, uh, especially in the modern day. It's really hard to avoid because our algorithms connect us to things that we agree with or that would give us some kind of reaction. Right. So this relates to the concept of eternalizing, right, or unifying, as Camus generally puts it, the, quote, truth. In which an individual is trying to become sure about is an ideal in which they have eternalized that is, they have set it up as an unbreakable concept that will exist forever. or like they've set it up as that they've they have that belief that it's a concept that exists outside of them that will exist forever, right? they've essentially unified it into something that cannot be changed and remember the 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 absurd man what they cannot unify they multiply right so they're not multiplying their truths they unify into one truth whereas the absurd man has multiple truths right what they cannot unify they multiply so this goes back to The Stranger when Merceau is speaking to the chaplain. So if you remember that the chaplain who is sure of the single truth, that God exists and Jesus forgives, tries to convince Merceau the same. Right? And uh, quote, he said it was impossible. All men believed in God, even those who turned their backs on him. That was his belief. And if he were to ever doubt it, his life would become meaningless, end quote. In this context, Camus is expressing that part of becoming sure of a belief involves trying to get other people to believe in it as well, right? It's, um, if you doubt your belief, or if you have any kind of doubt, you will want to indoctrinate other people into that belief, Right? So the the more people who believe in something, the easier it is to believe in yourself. The, The point is, if one bases their entire life on a single belief, their life will become meaningless the moment that belief is doubted. So it becomes necessary to continuously reassure oneself of the beliefs that give their life meaning. The absurd man and the conqueror cannot do this, as it requires unifying an ideal along with going beyond the limits of reason. So the the second part to this says that a man becomes a man through what he keeps to himself. I think what he's saying here is that an adult does not need to speak of their beliefs in order to believe them. They're sure of what they believe and do not need to continuously speak of these beliefs in order to have them be validated. They can stay silent with the knowledge that what they know is what they know. right? They're, they can be sure of themselves. They don't need to go out and explain themselves to people. They don't need to, oh, I believe this and this and that, right? Because they believe what they believe and they're not looking for validation and they're not looking to put their beliefs on other people because they're sure of themselves not what they believe in right that, that that's a stark contrast if you're sure of what you believe in then you take that away and your life's meaningless right mm-hmm. but if you're sure of yourself you can't take yourself away unless you die right so so that's kind of part of what really uh that's kind of where the the, my connection between absurdism and taoism comes into play right that's uh there's a very famous quote from bruce lee um it's it's something along the lines of like be like water right be like water Because if you like water, you can be anything. You can be a vase, you know. You can right. The water can take the form of whatever it's in. If water is in a cup, water becomes a cup. Water is in a vase, water becomes a vase, right? Water comes in three forms. Water is a nutrient for life, right? Be like water. It's ever changing. Can't be destroyed. It bends past anything that hits it. Be like water. So. The absurdist is strong in that very same way. The absurdist isn't confined to one belief or one unifying principle. Their beliefs are multiplied because they multiply what they can't unify, right? They And they're willing to change. They confront the idea that there is constant change in this world, and therefore they go along that path of change, right? They they kind of follow that path. They follow the way in a sense, in a sense, right? Obviously, there's this very stark contrast between Taoism and absurdism, but there is a link there, and I, I highly recommend reading the Tao Te Ching and reading the myth of Sisyphus, and obviously in this conqueror passage. Uh, it's very similar to Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which I just listened to the audiobook today on Spotify. It's uh it's actually a free audiobook on Spotify, which I highly recommend checking out. So all right. So now the question often arises for those unfamiliar with the absurd or nihilism, in which they ask. Why would one be motivated to do anything if there is nothing eternal to guide their values? There are many ways to answer this question. One answer I like is on the following page when Camus quotes the Conqueror. Quote, conscious that I cannot stand aloof from my time, I have decided to be an integral part of it. So essentially, since the conqueror cannot step away from his reality, since he is always stuck within the time he lives within, he decides to be an integral part of it. Sorry, that sounded sounded weird. This is the same reasoning of Don Juan and the actor, right? Don Juan loves each woman with all of his heart, and the actor plays each play with their talent and skill. Likewise, the conqueror lives out life trying to become a monument of history. Someone who is integral to whatever time they live within. They do this because they are aware that this is the only chance they have at living. So why not do the best they can, right? Living like Larry. This problem this this probably is one of the most important life lessons we get out of the myth of Sisyphus. While it is it's certainly the cliche, you know, YOLO. YOLO 420 swag. Right? Uh you, you only live once. It you only live once. It, it's a cliche, but cliches are cliches for a reason, right? They we we only have one life to live. That's it. Or oh. or at least we can only be certain of it that we we have this life which we're currently living. That like put it another way. We don't know for certain that there's going to be another life after this. But what we do know for certain is that we are currently living this life now. Right? Why not live it the best you can possibly live it? If you're going to be a conqueror, why not go for it all? Rule the world. Take it over. Why don't you? Okay. So... We see this quote followed up with, quote, knowing that there are no victorious causes, I have a liking for lost causes. They require an uncontam- uncontaminated soul equal to its defeat as to its temporary victories. End quote. The conqueror knows that they will die and thus everything they have conquered will have become unconquered. And so they are aware that conquering is a lost cause. But they don't do it for cause of it, because the conqueror does not live in the future. They live now. They conquer for the sake of conquering. So remember the first paragraph of this section, right? A, don't confuse my action for a lack of thought. After all, what's even the point of thought if that thought doesn't lead to some kind of action, right? Taking action on one's thoughts are integral to establishing themselves as a mature adult. Humu reinforces this with, quote, There always comes a time when one must choose between contemplation and action. This is called becoming a man, end quote. Now, I want to ask you guys a question. Um if you want to if you want to answer it and, and respond to me feel free to email me or comment on spotify or youtube um but uh, otherwise maybe discuss it with your friends i don't know how many times have you had a reoccurring thought in your head about something that you wanted to do but you you either didn't have the guts to do it or you didn't have the energy to it? you just didn't want to, or, or you just didn't have the time right you you didn't make time for it. What did it take to finally do the thing we were lolling over? Now, there's been many times in my life where I procrastinated something for months and even years at a time. Because actually executing that decision absolutely terrified me. Absolutely terrified me. Right. So. I'm I, well, I mean, and sometimes I was just too lazy or I just didn't find the time. I just like, I didn't care enough about, it, right. But when I actually ended up doing that thing, it felt almost like entering into some other dimension that, that I wasn't supposed to be in. Right. Like I was like, Holy shit. I actually did it. Like I actually did it. I, I did it. I did it. I did it. I've been, thinking about doing this for three years but i actually did it right when you actually do something that you've been fantasizing about it feels it's it's a feeling that i can't really even describe other than what what i said about going to another dimension it feels like you're not supposed to be there like you just went back in time and changed it or something right So. When you do the things you fantasize about or that you've been procrastinating or you've been contemplating doing, you subsequently reassure yourself that you're capable of changing your life. That you own the ability to have the effect on the events in your life. You reassure yourself of the control you have over your life and over your decisions and your actions. You can do things to get what you want. Right? And that is why Camus says it is called, quote, becoming a man. Being an adult requires that one is able to make their own decisions and be responsible for the events in their life. But, you know, it's it's hard, right? It's it's extremely difficult to do something we're afraid to do. So I, I've, I've mentioned this author like so many times on the podcast. It's probably can mention him without even saying his name. But uh, Dr. Chris Ryan, the host of the Tangentially Speaking podcast. Has mentioned on his podcast that the metaphor that. Uh, when a rocket takes off. Like you know, from Florida or whatever, most of its fuel is used up getting out of the atmosphere. So it this is a very applicable analogy for this because wh- whenever you're waiting, like contemplating doing something, or you're too scared to do it, or you're procrastinating you're spending a lot more time and energy thinking about doing that thing than it will ever take to actually do the thing, right? You're building up all this mem- momentum, and then eventually, boom, you do it, right? It's not like when you're uh, you're waiting outside of a cold pool. You're like, ah, I'm not sure if I want to get in. You know, and eventually, you get in, right? And, and it's also... The same reason why it's it's easier to jump into the cold pool and to slowly walk in, right? It's uh, a lot of times you kind of just have to stop thinking and just do it. This is something I was talking about with uh, with Ryan Bush on the last podcast. Uh, the best way to conquer your fears is to simply face them head on. Obviously, this is like this is super cliche and obvious, and you've probably heard it a thousand times by now but it's true right it sucks but it's true that no one's going to do it for you um i know a a lot of times when when i procrastinate on stuff or like i'm scared to do something i'll listen to all these podcasts i'll read all these philosophy books right I'll, i'll write you know i'll complain to my friends or talk to my friends about stuff and I know deep down that there's a part of me that wants someone else to do it for me. I want someone else to force me to do something. I want someone else to tell me, give me permission. You know, I want want some book to give me the wisdom to carry on. And you can get all that information. You can get all that validation and advice, but it's not going to it's not going to force your hand, right? You're the only person that can make the decisions in your life. You're the person behind the wheel. Right? So it's adulthood to come to the point where you stop contemplating stuff. And you you just get shit done, right? You you get it done. All right. We'll, We'll move on from that rant. So following this, he kind of gives a reason. Quote, there's God or time, that cross or this sword. This world has a higher meaning that transcends its worries or nothing is true but those worries. One must live with time and die with it or else elude it for a greater life. I know that one can compromise and live in the world while believing in the eternal. That is called accepting. But I loathe this term and want all or nothing. Deprived of the eternal, I want to ally ally, ally myself with time. End quote. So the conqueror does not want to live their life believing in an eternal ideal. They do not want to live their life contemplating Whether or not they will live another life, they want to simply live this one, right? The the conqueror wants to either live this life to the fullest or not live at all. There is no in between, there is no compromise for the conqueror. It's kind of, it reminds me of that Yoda line do or do not. There is no try, right? The conqueror decides to act or decides to not act, there is no waiting. And there is no hoping. The end quote, the individual can do nothing and yet he can do everything. End quote. That is, we can choose to sit here and do nothing or we can start the process of doing everything. Although this is a lost cause. The conqueror, remember, loves lost causes. Why? Because a lost cause gives one a reason to enjoy it for what it is while you're fighting it. Now, a couple pages later, Camus kind of dives into the main plight that Sisyphus experiences when he pushes his boulder, right? Or at least when, when he gets to the top. Quote Yes, man is his own end, and he is his only end. If he aims to be something, it is in this life. Now I know it only too well. Conquerors sometimes talk of vanquishing and overcoming, but it is always overcoming oneself that they mean. You are well aware of what that means. Every man has felt himself to be the equal of a god at certain moments. At least this is the way it is expressed. But this comes from the fact that in a flash, he felt the amazing grandeur of the human mind, end quote. So the important part of this is the end, right? In in a flash, in a flash, you felt the amazing grandeur. In a flash, one feels like a god. But immediately afterwards, they go back to feeling everyday normalness, right? The, The conqueror is aware of this. They know that feelings are fleeting. And if you read meditations, this is kind of like a big, this is a big concept. meditations i mean obviously it's it's obvious you know feelings are fleeting but um it's something that we do need to get reminded of because a lot of times i'll find myself in a depression and and i'll forget that it's fleeting right i'll feel like it's gonna be there forever right you don't want to act you don't want to make decisions based off of temporary feelings right At least not without being aware that they're temporary. So, they're aware that they are not conquering anyone except themselves. Except the deception that one becomes a god when they reach the heights. They're aware that the ball will roll down. Right? But the thing is, they're also aware of the fact that they'll push it back up again. They're aware that they will experience that amazing grandeur once again or Nietzsche's single most greatest joy, right? That always There's always another joy worth living for. So I recently finished a show called Beef on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend watching it. It's only like 10 episodes and they're 30 minutes long. I haven't really watched a show that's given me i mean it wrecked me like I'll, I'll come back and like every time i think about it i feel this sadness i feel joy i feel this like mixture of feeling because every episode like cut deep it cut deep in me um because a lot of the feelings and emotions that they go through are like things that i've also experienced and i feel like a lot of people have so it was it was a great show um Very great directing. The screenplay was awesome. The acting was amazing. And the plot was um, very unique. And it's not something you normally see. And it kind of just gives you everything you want. It was was definitely a tearjerker. A little bit scary at times. I honestly experienced every single emotion you could possibly experience. Plus, it was just really deep and insightful. So... Highly recommend if you have Netflix, go watch beef, check it out. Um, I am not sponsored. I just love it. So. (laughs) But the point is, there's a scene where one of the protagonists asks the other if there was ever a point where they had enough money and enough wealth. If there was ever a point where they were happy with what they had. And she replies, quote, everything fades that is, the answer to happiness was never going to be found in wealth, money, or power. Going back to the myth of Sisyphus, we have quote: "Thought faces threatened fraternity, such strong and cast friendship among men. These are the true riches, because they are transitory." End quote. But everything is transitory, right? With that said, everything is the true riches. And if everything is the true riches, then that means it's not everything that makes them valuable. It's you. You make everything valuable. You're the one who has the power to become happiness. Or to to become happy, right? Not your stuff, not your friends, not anything except for you. You're the one who has the power to become happy. Now we move forward from this and Camus referring to the death of the mind quote, it will die at the same time as this body but knowing this constitutes its freedom. So because everything fades including us that gives us the freedom to live because not fading implies not changing. It implies staying put. And what stays put but that which is in chains right? Right? That which is in a prison. Those who are aware of the fact that everything fades have the power to let it fade. And they let it fade by taking action and doing things in their life because creation is the same as destruction. The lion must destroy in order for the child to create. And if you're just tuning into the podcast for the first time, I'm making a Thus Spoke Zarathustra reference there. Uh, Camel, lion, child, the three metamorphoses, if you're interested. Okay. Quote In the rebel universe, death exalts justice. It is the supreme abuse, end quote. That is, the absurd man's awareness of death and love of life put them at odds with death. Death's the absurd man's enemy. And so they rebel against death by constantly changing, by taking action. Because staying put or hoping for another life all amounts to living as if you're a dead man. I'll leave you with a quote from the last paragraph in the second to last page of this section. Uh, But just as a housekeeping item, after this section, we'll be moving on to hopefully a podcast with Jamal. To go over the whole chapter and then I'll be moving on to the final four sections so and then I'll probably just wait to do another podcast with Jamal until after the end of the book Um, but yeah th- this will be absurd creation I'm considering just doing one episode for the whole chapter Um, it's it's getting a little bit wearing doing an episode per section I'm not gonna lie uh, maybe it's getting wearing for you too. I, I'd love to hear your your feedback on that. Um, but yeah, I might do absurd creation in one episode, and then uh, do the the final one, the myth of Sisyphus, will be kind of like the, the finale. Obviously, uh, we'll probably just read honestly read the whole thing for the podcast. Um, just, it's pretty short. So, anyways, uh, thank you for listening and. Here's the last little bit of Camus I want to share. Quote, The lover, the actor, or the adventurer plays the absurd, but equally well, if he wishes, the chast man, the civil servant, or the president of the republic. It is enough to know and to mask nothing. Be yourself, guys. Peace out. Take it easy.